Welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. We're going to church today to celebrate the Aretha Franklin documentary, Amazing Grace. Aretha recorded her double album, Amazing Grace, in 1972 at the New Temple Missionary Baptist Church in the Watts neighborhood of Los Angeles. For two nights, she performed under the direction of gospel legend Reverend James Cleveland, backed by the Southern California Community Choir, led by Alexander Hamilton. It would become her biggest-selling album. Warner Brothers hired Sidney Pollack to film the event for a television special. But Pollack's camera crew missed a crucial step in syncing the footage to the audio recording. When they got to the edit room, the picture and sound didn't match up, so the project was abandoned. The reels were sent to vaults, like at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. A couple decades later, Warner Brothers producer Alan Elliott discovered the reels and took the film up as a passion project. By then, digital technology had greater capability to sync the footage. Pollock wanted to see the film completed, but he passed away in 2008. Elliot kept it moving forward. I first learned of it in 2011, when Elliot's producer, Chami Karasawa, invited me to watch a cut edited by Jeff Buchanan, known for his work with Spike Jones, But the film's release was on hold over contract negotiations. In 2015, Elliot and his agents felt they had a path for distribution. That year, I invited the film to the Toronto International Film Festival. But one week before, Aretha got a court order to block the film from being screened. We can only speculate on her motives. She told the Detroit Free Press that she loved the film. But in David Ritz's biography of Aretha, he documents a long history of her being a fierce negotiator prone to changing her mind. She had the prerogatives of a queen. After Aretha passed away in August, her niece Sabrina Owens invited producers Alan Elliott and Terrell Whitley to the funeral. Elliott screened the film for Franklin's family in September, and they were eager to put it out in the world.
Finally, 46 years after the recording was captured, the film made its world premiere at Doc NYC on November 12, 2018. On this episode, I want to share highlights from the New York premiere. They include remarks from Reverend Al Sharpton, Reverend William Barber, and singer Yara Allen, plus a conversation with producers Alan Elliott, Terrell Whitley, Aretha's niece Sabrina Owens, and writer Nelson George. We begin with Reverend Sharpton, who gave this invocation before the film. When Sabrina called me about this, I used to do the prayer at Aretha's birthday every year. So I'm certainly touched tonight. This album I grew up on, when my father had left us, it was an album my mother played every day. I used to tell Aretha about it. So I'm very excited about watching the actual filming of it. I knew James Cleveland when I was a boy preacher. So you're about to see history as well as a great musical film. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for our presence here. We thank you for Aretha Franklin and how you gave her a gift that she never abandoned, but she was grounded and rooted in the black church and took that church all over the world, even in her secular music, she would give you the praise. She would never do a concert without putting gospel in it. So as we watch this, we remember Aretha, the daughter of C.L. Franklin, a civil rights leader, one who knew Martin Luther King. And she knew the amazing grace that she sang about because it was grace that brought her and her father from the deep south to Detroit becoming a major base and foundation for a movement of people that just sought to be free and brought her to the pinnacle of show business. But she never left the roots, never left the belief that you were God, and she was not ashamed to put that message anywhere. Bless this film that it blesses people all over the world to not only remember that before we had a president of our color, before we held corporate positions, you gave us a queen, and that queen never forgot that it was you that held her crown. May we have these blessings upon us that will continue in that tradition. Bless us and strengthen us, and encourage us and inspire us tonight as we remember through Aretha your amazing grace. Sharpton refers to Aretha's father, Reverend C.L. Franklin, who was a national figure in the black church. His sermons were released as records, and his Detroit home was a gathering place for visiting musicians and civil rights leaders. From a young age, Aretha performed at her father's church and on the road with him. In the film Amazing Grace, Reverend Franklin makes an appearance he briefly takes the pulpit and pays tribute to Aretha, ending with this anecdote. I went in the cleaners one day in Detroit to pick up some clothes. And um, Aretha had appeared on a recent television show. And she told me, I saw your daughter Aretha last night. I said, yes. She said, uh, 
How did you like it? She said, it was all right. <laughs> said, but I'll be glad when she comes back to the church. I said, listen, baby, let me tell you something. <clears throat> if you want to know the truth, she has never left the church. After the film's premiere, a discussion was led by Nelson George. He's authored several books about black music, among other topics. He's also produced and directed documentaries of his own, including Good Hair with Chris Rock and A Ballerina's Tale about Misty Copeland. Nelson moderated this conversation with Amazing Grace producers Alan Elliott, Terrell Whitley, and Aretha's niece, Sabrina Owens. We begin with Nelson. Let me just say what I got to say, because I get that out of the way. Yeah. This film is a testament to black genius. Yeah. And a particular con- moment of black genius, the tradition you saw here, Aretha is part of a long lineage. And when you're seeing, how many people know who Clara Ward is in this room? All right. All right, that's a higher percentage than I expected. Clara Ward and the Clara Ward singers Shorthand were the Supremes of the gospel world of the 50s. Glamour, power, polish, style. Hair. Of course, hair. (laughs) So when you're seeing Clara Ward there, you're seeing Aretha singing to one of her ancestors, if you will. Her father. Did you hear that? Did you hear that pronunciation? Did you hear the cadence in that rhythm? I mean, people know Dr. King, but this was the premier orator of his time. I have somewhere in my bottom of my my closet a cassette tape from Chess Records of The Prodigal Son, one of his most famous sermons. And I listen to it uh, pretty regularly. You are witnessing not just Aretha, but you're witnessing part of a tradition. Some of these songs go back to the 30s. And and if not the song directly, the melody lines and the arrangement. you're seeing a summation of a, of, a, of, a, of a culture. And I think that this, this movie exists at the right time to remind the culture of the power of that tradition. And one of the things I hope this movie does is reach out to young people who are now several decades removed from this tradition. They are part of a legacy of power and a legacy of passion that we need to reconnect them to. And when you see the film, you, I mean, I've listened to that record many times, but the moment, I didn't know, I didn't know uh, Reverend James Cleveland threw a, threw, a, threw a towel. You know, I didn't know when you hear Amazing Grace that they both were overcome. And that pause you hear in the record is not them preparing to sing, they're getting themselves together to sing again. So the visual record of this movie just takes something that was already a masterpiece and elevates it for another generation. So I just had to tell you my little piece there. So uh, I met Alan Elliott. I knew him before. The, I remember 10 years ago, I believe, I was, I was in a soundstage mixing a movie called Good Hair for a guy named Chris Rock. And I got a, this guy kept hitting me on Facebook about, can, you, can I meet with you? I'm like, all right. And he had a DVD of this thing. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. So Alan, you have to talk about the journey, how this thing happened. And, you know, it's, it's an incredible and it's a long, epic story, so give me the... I'll give you the... The, the Winnipeg... The 30-second yeah. version? Yeah. Yeah, okay. That'll be easy. Um, 
first, uh, somewhere around here is Lisa Wexler. Where's Lisa Wexler? Okay, Lisa Wexler. So Lisa Wexler's father was Jerry Wexler. Jerry Wexler signed Aretha Franklin to Atlantic Records. Where's Bernard Purdy? Is Bernard Purdy here? Where's Bernard Purdy? Woo! See now, see now, what you don't know is that like, I've been on Bernard Purdy to get here tonight. I mean like, he's like, I'm going to Chicago. I, I, I don't care, Bernard, you gotta be here. So to have, uh, to have this is really, to have you here. Bernard Purdy was a drummer in the movie. Yes. Okay. And Bernard Purdy holds it down, still holds it down. Pretty Purdy. Pretty Purdy. <laughs> yes, yes. So Jerry Wexler was my mentor at Atlantic Records when I was a staff producer in 1990 because they wouldn't allow me to make the kind of records that I wanted to make. So they made me go hang out with the old guys. And the old guy that I was, was my hero was Jerry Wexler. So I went down to Miami and I found, and Jerry in his gruff way said to me, um, yeah, well, you love Amazing Grace, right? And yeah. He said, yeah, we filmed it. And I was like, what? And he's like, oh, yeah, we filmed it. Uh, some guy, Sydney, somebody. Sydney <laughs> like, who? Sydney uh, Sydney Lumet. <laughs> like, really? The Sydney Lumet? I don't know. The Sydney Pollock? Yeah, I, yeah, that was it. And in this, in that way that your father did, he was like, I said, well, what happened? He said, I don't know. I made a great record. <laughs> The rest of it, I don't know about. And he, he was just like, I, you know, I wasn't in the film department. That led me, um, that was 1990. Um, that's when I was like, that's when I came up with the idea for En Vogue to sing the national anthem. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> so um, 11 years ago, my wife was pregnant and I was like, we have got to get a life raft out of the record business because there's no way out. And uh, I remembered Amazing Grace, and I called Jerry, who was down in Sarasota, Florida, and I said, hey, you know, why, why, don't, we do that? why, don't, we do, why don't we get into that? And he said, all right, uh, yeah, that sounds like a good plan. You're the Don Quixote type. Why don't you, we get into it? <laughs> and so I got introduced to Sidney Pollack uh, through a mutual friend, uh, Marilyn Allen Bergman, he was terrific. He said, yeah, and I always wanted to get into it. I wanted to, and Unfortunately, he got very sick very quickly. Um, and he and Ari Emanuel went to Warner Brothers and um, Ari Emanuel was best man at my wedding. I knew him back in those En Vogue days. So um, uh, they made the deal for me to go make the movie. And then Sidney, before he passed away, said to the studio, Alan Elliott knows this movie better than I do. Let him go finish it. And in that spirit, we went and made the movie, and you know, uh, there's many other stories that you can't tell in the, the short time I'm trying to get here, but um, that was the spirit of it all, and how to be true to your dad, to Sidney, to that man over there, Bernard Purdy, Jimmy Douglas, where's Jimmy Douglas? Where's Jimmy Douglas? Jimmy, Jimmy Douglas, doing, baby? so Jimmy Douglas, was 22 years old when he mixed the record, okay? 
He now mixes for Jay-Z and Timberland and Justin Timberlake and all that sort of stuff. So he's a big deal now. Now, you have to realize the only way the movie got paid for was I had to mortgage my house because nobody wanted to see the movie. Nobody wanted to pay for the movie. So Jimmy Douglas, last week and for the last couple of years, has done all of this work for free. And he flew himself out to Los Angeles last week on his dime to finish what we heard because what you heard is somewhat true to what he made 46 years ago, but it's his version of his version. <laughs> and, and that was really important. And I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do a couple things. because I know we got another group coming in. There, I got you. All right. Rob Johnson, Terrell Whitley, Joe Boyd, Joe Wolf held it down. This has been an incredible journey, and it is a team. And we now have our LeBron James in the Franklin family. Um, we would not do it without the Franklin family. When Sabrina, I talked to Sabrina here uh, five years ago, three years ago, five years ago. If I say it's three, it's five. Um, and, and, we, and we started a conversation because how to do it. We knew Aretha loved the movie. But we can only imagine how angry she was, like your father, Lisa, that the record side took care of business. The film business didn't take care of Aretha. And how mad she might have been at me for being a seven-year-old kid at that time <laughs> and carrying this forward and saying, well, I'm so, still so mad about it. But we'll never know. Terrell and I flew to Detroit. Did you talk about the, the, the relationship with, with Aretha? With the people? Well, I never met Aretha. I met Aretha for five seconds, maybe. Right. Jerry introduced me. It was a very nice moment. Um, so why don't you talk about how you got involved in... Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sure, sure, sure. So, again, Terrell Whitley, and I was introduced to Alan by Ruben Cannon. Uh, some of you may know Ruben with Tyler Perry. He's a producer with Tyler Perry. Ruben uh, pulled me aside and said, hey, there's a film that you really need to be a part of. And there's this guy in Los Angeles named Alan that needs your help. Uh, I sat down and Alan sent me a link. I watched the movie as you guys have watched it. And I wanna, want you to know how blessed you are. There, are. there aren't thousands, there aren't millions of people. There's hundreds of folks that have seen this film. You're part of the number. But there are thousands and millions of Aretha Franklin fans. I want you to know that you guys are probably a very, very, very special group. I sat in my office with the music blasting and I listened to this album and listened to the movie and my wife came in and I was crying and she sat down on my lap and we watched the movie together and then she was crying and before you knew it, I said I had to get involved. Um, I called Alan, flew out to Los Angeles, it took a while uh, he had to do a lot of pulling and tugging, but he is very um, tenacious, and he is dogged. In a loving sure. way. In a loving way, but he's tenacious about making sure this film gets done and gets done right. During that process, um, of course, after Ms. Franklin passed, we had to figure out a new path, a new way, and we made a special trip to Detroit. Because Sabrina invited us to come to the funeral. Exactly. And we came to Detroit to uh, show the family. It was just family and friends. And maybe Sabrina, how about you tell us how things went from there? 
So about four to six weeks after my aunt passed, um, Alan called and said we'd like to bring the movie to Detroit and just sort of um, show it to the family and friends. So we invited about 40 or 50 uh, family and friends to come through the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History to view the film, and everybody loved it. And I knew from when I saw it about five years ago that I would love for all of you and the whole world to see it, because as you can see, it was an amazing film. And it was confirmed by our family and friends, and so we knew on that night we had to do something to get this film out to you. And so I'm so glad that we were able to complete it so that you could see it tonight, and others can see it after. So, uh, I mean, I know for me, as a fan of the culture, this is one of the things I've been waiting to see since I saw it 10 years ago. And um, I mean, I almost cried again. Um, people around me were crying. It is one of those, um, because it's obviously Aretha, at the, her voice is at peak power, but it's also seeing um, Reverend James Cleveland. Those of you who don't understand who Reverend James Cleveland was and how, how much of a figure he was, not only in Aretha's life, but in the world of gospel music. His conventions you know, were the place to go every year to be part of the gospel world. He's a fabulous piano player. And he's funny as hell, too. You know, so he was, he was a dynamic figure who, it's almost like this movie should be, a, you guys should be Googling everything. <laughs> From the songs to the, because everyone in here, Cornell Dupree, the guitar player who's fabulous, he played with Sam Cooke. He's on the, he's on the 19, he's on the- oh, um, Bernard Purdy, by the I know, way. I know what I'm saying, but Bernard, Cornell's know, not here. He's right there. <laughs> I'm just saying, but Cornell Dupree, fantastic. I mean, the musicians on this record. Oh, yeah. The organ player. Kenny Looper. Oof. I mean, so the musicianship, the level of, of, of power. This was, to me, you know, as a historian of black music, this is one of the seminal documents of what this culture is about. And so it needs to be seen by as many people around the world as possible. Yeah.
The final piece I want to share is a testimony from Reverend William Barber. He flew from his base in North Carolina to attend the New York premiere at the invitation of one of the film's producers, Robert Johnson. Barber is known for his civil rights campaign of Moral Mondays and for reviving Dr. Martin Luther King's Poor People's Campaign. Barber was joined by the singer and theomusicologist Yara Allen, who gives insight into Aretha's singing. After the film ended, Reverend Barber had this to say. In the tradition of faith, we ought to give, as I would say in my home church, the Lord a mighty hand clap tonight for giving us Aretha. Now, Miss Yara Allen is a theomusicologist for the Poor People's Campaign. And uh, Robert, thank you so much for even thinking about it, and Sabrina and all for having me to come. And I had asked her to come and show it, because I want to talk a little bit before the others come about how Aretha worried a note. And she, she said, I can't do nothing. I'm just messed up. She was over there crying and head all down. And, 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 and that's what happens when you worry a note. But at the end of the film, as she said, talked about never growing old, one of the things I hope we grabbed in that was Aretha came from a tradition that knew that when your existential reality is filled with pain and stress that constantly makes you old, you need what we call in theology a eschatology that can keep you living until you get to a place better. It is not escapism. It is knowing and singing and preaching and believing that the craziness of this world doesn't have the last say. In fact, when you know that, you can stand up and take on this world. And even if this world kills you, you are, you, you are glad you had the opportunity to stand in, the in time because you know you'll be all right in eternity. That's what she was singing about. You know, Aretha didn't sing, she moaned. Didn't she? She moaned. She, she was a theomusicologist. And that's why anywhere you could hear her singing in the club or in the church, you felt the spirit. Uh, she, she was singing the songs of a people so she didn't sing, she sang. She sang the songs of a people. Did you see in the film, and, and Bishop Pearson, I know you picked it up, where's Hezekiah? Bishop Hezekiah's still here, Bishop Hezekiah. When, when well, people see her and she closed her eyes, it's almost as though she's closing her eyes to see the people and to see the struggle and to sing from that place. Some of you might think well, that was just perspiration because it's hot, but when you sing in the spirit, that perspiration is the working of the spirit on the flesh. It is, in fact, the sweat of the people 
coming down over the brow. And that's why when you're fighting like that, because that's warfare against stuff, you don't wipe it off because it keeps you loose. Huh? Aretha was a singer who, as the prophets spoke of in the book of Kings, could help you hear God's voice. There's actually a scripture in the text that said, in the biblical text, that says the prophets can't speak correctly about justice until the minstrel sings properly. No wonder Dr. King didn't go to I Have a Dream at the March on Washington until Mahalia said, Doc, tell him about the dream. When Aretha sang, the heaviness of weariness and worry could be lifted. And it was so good to see her daddy come in because her daddy, I don't know how many of you know that, when Dr. King was shot, murdered, assassinated in April before the Poor People's Campaign was begun, it was C.L. Franklin who preached the opening sermon at the Poor People's Campaign at Resurrection City. It was C.L. Franklin that preached, and, and, and he preached a word we need to hear today because he talked about a time when some people were facing this uh, narcissistic, egotistical builder named, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar. <clears throat> That's what C.L. preached that night. He, he, he said, and these, these, these boys, were dealing with him because this guy wanted everybody to bow to him. He was a nationalist. And he wanted everybody to bow to him. And these three young people, these three Black Lives Matters or millennial people wouldn't bow. And uh, you know him, Shedrach, Meshach, and a bad Negro, you know him. And they wouldn't bow, and he threw them in. And, that, and, and that's what, what C.L. Franklin preached. And he, he, you know, he, King was shot. Malcolm had been shot. Mega had been shot. Viola Wusa, white woman, had been shot. People were being shot. A president had been killed. It was hard times. And, and Richard Nixon was launching the Southern strategy. And George Wallace was running from president from, from Alabama. And it was in that moment that C.L. Franklin, Aretha singing, but C.L. Franklin said, bowing down, we can't do that from that text. Oh, do we need to hear that today? Huh? Oh, do we need to hear that today? When Aretha sang, the heaviness of weirdness could be, and worry could be lifted because she knew how to sing a song in the night. Anybody can sing in the daytime when everything is going all right. Huh? But she knew that special singing that, that comes in the nighttime. And when she sang of grace, she embodied grace. You heard it. You, 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 you felt it. You experienced it. It was amazing to me tonight. I didn't know how it was going to open, Rod Johnson. I didn't know how it was going to open. But to think in this moment, when there's so much division in our land, the first song we would hear from Aretha on this film would be Holy, Holy, talking about us coming together. And then the third song in there would be How I Got Over. Thank God, thank God, she said, How I Got Over. My soul looks back 
and wonders how I got over. And, and right now, I was reading some news that I'm glad Stacey Abrams knows something about how I got over, and, and Gillum knows something about how I got over, and Mike Epps be down in Mississippi. Because every time folk want to say, these are the worst times we've ever seen, I want to ask you, are you nuts? We've been through slavery. We've been to the Holocaust. Don't you know how we got over? We should never, never face the present moment without knowing what Aretha knew, and that is remember the moments past and the things that we've already come through. Lastly, Aretha, she, she knew that grace that goes ahead of us. I think they call it prevenient grace. That's the grace that goes ahead of you. She knew that grace that surrounds you in the moment, and she knew that grace that follows after us and after you have failed, that grace that says, but it's still not over. Aretha was a daughter among the sons and daughters of slaves. And she took a song written by a former slave trader. Don't ever forget that. Amazing Grace was written by a former slave trader, John Newton. And Aretha took that song sang it through the pain, the soul, the sorrow, the hopes, and the happiness of the black church tradition. He brought slaves to Liverpool, England. And that same slave trader became an abolitionist because in a storm, grace grabbed him and set him free from the lies of racism and the lies of oppression. And Aretha sang Amazing Grace written by a former slave trader and turned it into an anthem. Aretha took that song as a daughter among the sons and daughters of slaves and she worried the notes and the lyrics. Is that wrong? Are you sure you can't just worry one note tonight? Just, just worry. Come on, worry, worry, worry. Just show. I want to just remind me, just one note, some note somewhere. What she did was called Worrying the Line. And that's pretty much what we do when we're out fighting. We're worrying that line. We're troubling waters. Now, y'all know I ain't Aretha. But I declare unto you, when I was little, I sang into that hairbrush like every other little girl. And I tied that sweater on my head and twisted the sleeves up at the top. And for that moment, I was Aretha Franklin. And I ain't ashamed to say I pretended to be her after I got grown. But if you'll notice, I may not be able to do that, but if you notice it, especially with Amazing Grace, when she started out with amazing, and she held that note, and all those notes, wherever she hit those highs, and it got a reaction from everybody, Bernice Regan said that she was a master of worrying the line. And so that's what you saw all through her singing, when she was able to sustain that note. And so... It would have gone something like, and whatever else comes after that, it's just that holding that note. And in the Pentecostal church, we've taken that amazing grace. How many times have you heard that note worried, that line worried, and we'll keep it going and keep it going as long as that uh, 
Hammond or that Leslie can hold out. So that's what she did. I, 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 I know justice is, justice is coming soon. And however you take that note, you all can worry your own lines. That's take it and run with it. That's it. That's it. And so, Bernice Reagan said, when you worry that note and give the spirit time and room, that's when a song can change people and change attitudes. It says to people that when you can worry that note and you allow people to bring their full self into the note, their hopes, their despairs, their joy, their sorrow, their strength, their weakness, you worry the line in the notes. To just hold the note and hang around it until, until it echoes through the ear and rumbles in the spirit and in the, of the hearers and the singer. And then what happens as you worry that note, the chains fall off and the captives are set free and nobody could could worry a line and a note like Aretha. She could worry it until you felt it, like crying and smiling at the same time. She could worry a note until you wanted to shout and run and clap, and if necessary, march and stand up. She could worry a note until the Holy Ghost just wouldn't leave you alone. And thank God she could worry a note and worried us until we wanted to love more and care more and do more for the cause of right. Aretha was not merely a performer, but she was a prophetic gift to the world. Aretha's voice worried the line and worried the note and stirred us up and shook us up and picked us up and lifted us up. After she sang, we felt like we could do anything because she worried and hung around that note and pulled out those words through many dangerous toils and snares. We've already come. In other words, no matter what's going on now, no matter what hate is doing now, no matter no matter what racism is doing now, no matter what Trump is doing now, Aretha would worry that note until we heard, we've already come. And if we've already come through it, then you know goodness well, we can go through what's it now and what's ahead of us. We, we, will, we can go through it because we know what we've already come through, because it was grace that brought us safe thus far, and grace will lead us home. Now, I just have one prophetic announcement I'm going to take as a, as, a, as a country bishop tonight. She's still singing. Lord, have mercy. And if you set your ear of the spirit toward heaven, you might just hear an echo every now and then. She's still singing because that last verse of that same song, Amazing Grace, says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. So Aretha didn't stop singing when she died. She's singing now. And every now and then, if you just cock your spirit's ear toward heaven, you can hear her singing, and Fannie Lou Hamer singing, and Martin Luther King singing, and Harriet Tubman singing, and, and Sojourner Truth singing. You can hear them singing, fight on, 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 fight on. Fight on! 
want to thank everyone who was on stage at the Amazing Grace premiere, the film's crusader, Alan Elliott, producers Terrell Whitley and Sabrina Owens, author Nelson George, and the featured speakers, Reverend Al Sharpton, Reverend William Barber, and singer Yara Allen. Amazing Grace will be released widely in 2019. For more about the original recording, I encourage you to read the book by Aaron Cohen titled Amazing Grace, published as part of the 33 and a third essays about iconic albums. Thanks to our team, series producer, Sarah Modo, field recordist, Taylor McNulty, sound mixer, Tom Micah, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Rafaela Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter at T-H-O-M Powers. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net.